The next time it was dark, so dark, pitch black everywhere, and you swept in so fast. I couldn't make out what was happening, but I could see what the night had done to you. I saw something new. I saw that you only lived there in the night, that it was the only place you could live, but that you also didn't really know how to live there, or maybe anywhere. I saw that you could only succumb to it, never stand up to it. I saw that the night tore you apart and had you convinced that you could not withstand anything real, real like looking at yourself being pulled apart, spilling open, dissolving, tearing. I saw what the night had done to you. I couldn't see anything else, but I could see this. You did not understand that the night is to be resisted sometimes. But how? How could you not understand? I was just a child. You were not. How could you not see? Maybe you were the night. Maybe that's why. And what was wrong with me? I could learn how to hold the night off, but not how to hold you off. You were still growing steadily within me. How? Something can shake up your entire sensorium throw every way of knowing, feeling, perceiving into crisis. And that is called trauma, but what if each constitutive block of the sensorium is wrong, so wrong, and there isn't shaking up so much as continually permeating bad? How do you get it out? It stayed dark the whole time. You were sweeping through me and through me, wringing me out. I was a piece of broken glass tumbling in the surf. I was being inhaled and exhaled by something, something. It was dark. It stayed dark. I was so scared for you to see me naked. Soon it was over and you said, see you in the next world, baby. And I stood silent and motionless, incapable as always, everything spilling out of me. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's discussion and our guest, we want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Taylor needs a new pair of shoes, so let's get a, get a dollar for him. If you can't do that, that's, you know, we totally understand. You could leave us a nice review on iTunes. That'd be great. To that end, we actually want to shout out a couple of our listeners for leaving a couple of reviews over the past week. And those two are Mac Genius 09 and Young Don Sutherland. So shout out to both of you for that. Today, Taylor and I are very proud to bring you our guest, Lindsay Lerman. Lindsay earned her PhD in philosophy from the University of Guelph. She is author of two novels, I'm From Nowhere and What Are You, and is translator of Francois Laroyle's first book, Phenomenon and Difference, Essays on the Ontology of Ravasson. You fucked me up there, Taylor. What are you? I did fuck you. (laughs) I did fuck you. But uh, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of the podcast. Excited to chat with you and and get to meet you. I know you and Taylor have a pre-existing relationship. So yeah, just welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Am I right that the the translation is dropping this month? 
later in the month. I don't know the exact date. I think they're still working on the final, final copy edits or, you know, I don't really know, but yes, very soon. (laughs) I got to give you big congrats because we were talking about this, what, four, five years ago? And it was five years. And even Mm -hmm. five years ago, it had been delayed. Right. So this is a, this is like a, what, you know, it's um, one of those, what, what do you call it? I was going to say premature birth, but it's the opposite of that. It's a it's a very um, very mature birth. It took a while. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like this is not a baby anymore. This is a toddler. <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, I think I actually finished the translation five years ago. So okay, okay. I actually feel so far. I mean, think of everything that's happened in the past five years, right? It's like insane. We're all so different in so many ways. I actually feel quite far from the person who translated it, and. I'm supposed to go on a podcast to talk about it sometime soon. And I realized, oh shit, like I need some, <laughs> I need some notes because right. I don't know what I remember of it. You know, it's right. just been so long since my head was in it. I realized I really got to prepare. Like I got to get immersed back into the world of that book. But yes, the translation is done. I mean, the first, the first iteration of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I, and, and since you said that you probably need a refresh and you're going to be talking about this on another podcast, I won't. I won't you know, bother you about Laura Well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, maybe an anecdote that gives us some of your origin story, whether it be the humanities, philosophy, becoming a novelist, a writer, even translating yeah. as, as a part mm-hmm. of that excursus and trajectory? Well, I don't know if I have any like charming anecdotes, but I do know that I was thinking about this the other day. I don't really have any memories of any time in my life when I wasn't writing. And often as a child, I I wrote a lot of stories and I I think I always kept a journal or a diary, but I never used them to like work out how I felt about anything. I think it was, it was just more matter of fact, like I needed, not even that I needed to narrate my existence. It was just like, I didn't know how to process being alive on this earth without having some sort of self-reflexive relationship through language. And so, you know, I grew up in a home where, how to say this, it just wasn't particularly emotionally stable. So I think probably I, you know, I I used used art, many different forms of art as like a a crutch, you know, a a big crutch. As I got older and older, and I found that my relationship with writing just kept developing. It never went away. My relationship to it got more sophisticated and less crutch-like, you know? Right. It grew as I grew and as I changed. And, you know, I wanted to go study creative writing, but that simply wasn't a possibility for me. I went to, you know, for undergrad, I almost did not go to school, but I went to, I ended up going to the state school where they were like, hey, you're in the top 10% or something of your graduating class. So you will get in if you apply and you'll get a partial tuition waiver. And that was, that was it. That was my option. So I took it and I found philosophy my first semester. I didn't know what I was going to study other than Mm -hmm. I thought probably English, but I took a philosophy class and I was completely hooked. That's awesome. Completely hooked. It was just like, oh shit, I'm smart. (laughs) You know, I hadn't really known. (laughs) I just had not known, you know, I suspected that maybe I wasn't as much of an idiot. As I thought I was, but you know, I just never had. I'd been exposed to all kinds of, um, I guess you could call it Eastern thought through my father and okay. Jewish mysticism also through my father and my father's side of the family. So that was in lots of ways very formative. But 
you know, the systematic study of philosophy and of literature, I had just had not realized that was an option for me until I got to school and I was really, really able to do it, like really able to do it. Like I just flew through those classes and I loved it. I felt so alive, you know. There is that feeling of I can do this and a a little bit of philosophy goes a long way (laughs) because you feel smart and then you get into more of it and then you not so much, right? It's kind of, you had that Socratic moment where like, hey, maybe I don't really know. Yes, but no, absolutely. Did you also study some literary theory? Because that was something that got me into philosophy, you know, being, Mm -hmm. having that background of kind of as a kid, always writing poems or stories or being interested in literature. When I found out, when when I I was an undergrad and had this big volume of the Norton anthology of theory and criticism, and they're like, okay, today we're going to be reading Lacan's essay on the mirror (laughs) stage, and you're going to apply this to Frankenstein. It was very, on the one hand, very hard and very new, but it was also like, holy shit, I I can do this with any text. That was a big aha moment where- Yeah, so exhilarating, right? Yeah, it opens up a lot of doors. So I- that's wonderful. And so you got a bachelor's as well as a PhD in philosophy, right? Or was there some other? Yeah, there were other degrees in there too. So I I found philosophy. I loved philosophy. I wanted to study philosophy forever, you know, I thought, but I needed to have a job as soon as I was done with undergrad. Like it wasn't really an option for me to just kind of like bum around and keep going to school. I really needed to have a job, you know, everything in my life made that super clear. Like you need to be able to pay your own bills, all that. So Simultaneously, I got an education degree because I thought, well, I can teach. And I don't know why. I mean, I know why I felt called to teach. I felt like this is maybe going to be a bit too cheesy than I, maybe cheesier than I want to be, but it's, I guess I'm feeling honest right now. I felt like if I have one gift in this world, it's that I think I might be able to like open up human hearts a bit. Like there's just something about me. Like people have, since the moment I could listen, people have always, given me their deepest, darkest secrets just immediately. Like maybe I, I'm trustworthy. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm an evil villain who <laughs> can draw out things through a sort of false intimacy. But if there's one gift I have, I felt like it's actually touching hearts or opening hearts or something. And it seemed like teaching could be a way to do that and make money and maybe also give something back to the world and not just take and take and take and take. I simultaneously got an education degree. And then I went, you know, so I finished my bachelor's in my BA in philosophy and my BS in education. And then I went out and started teaching and I taught for a few years and that was great. Extremely hard, extremely, extremely hard and challenging and demanding, you know, but also wonderful in so many ways. But I knew at a certain point that I was not done with philosophy and that it wasn't done with me. So then I went on to get the PhD and it was while I was doing the PhD that I really leaned in pretty hard to also writing novels on the side that I just did completely in secret because, I mean, maybe I told a couple of friends, but that's it. Cause I had like really my, my deepest, biggest dream was to be a novelist, but I also loved philosophy and I hoped to one day be able to teach philosophy. And so, you know, I just, I nudged myself a bit onto the professional philosopher track, even though deep in my heart, I think I knew I wanted to do something a little more wild. That's great. And I was going to suggest if if you actually were taking the traditional supervillain route, you would have become a psychoanalyst because it sounds like you've got the superpower of inducing transference or something like this, right? That's yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. (laughs) 
you're just you're just choosing not to wield that power so directly and uh well i can't now at this point in my life you know i just think knowing what i know about the world and myself and how cruel people are like i can't i just really can't and over the past few years i've I've kept to myself a lot more too. And mm-hmm. part of it is that it's been, you know, things change when you publish books and like you get even just a little bit of attention, you know, things change and people get weird on you and some people disappear and some people suddenly appear and they want to be your best friend and you know, there's something off, you know? So my relationship to people and to the world has had to shift a bit. And I realized like, if I use that superpower right now, it's not, it's not going to go well. <laughs> it's right. It's like, that what's the adage about black magic? It comes back sevenfold. You know, if you put evil out into the world, you, uh, yeah, something like that. Right. That's why I think, and I've been encouraging Coop to do this, but that's why I had to get off Facebook because of something like you're talking about, just that constant immediate ability to interact with people that you may have known or, you know, now, and it gets weird, you know, Twitter's one thing because it's mostly anonymous and mostly, uh, shit posting, but, (laughs) Yeah. And more performative. Twitter can be more performative and ridiculous. Whereas Facebook is just, it's so earnest and like early internet, you know, like family photos and all that stuff, which is fine, whatever, but I don't really want to do that. The only time I will creep onto Facebook is to see photos of my nieces. So (laughs) that to me is like the proper use of Facebook is the, because my sister, you know, she's a proud mama. She's going to be putting out photos of the, of her beautiful girls. And so that's kind of nice. That's not, that's not bad. No, it um, it really is. No, it really is. It's just when you get into a situation where you can sense that people want to use whatever personal information you might have as um, a kind of ammunition, that's when I just have to disengage completely. Going into the book, you know, what was interesting was, you know, I guess it was about halfway through or maybe getting close to a third of the way through. And I saw for the first time, you mentioned philosophy, this scene about your, your stacks of philosophy books, the you is being, is quipping at you, right? That it's self-help mumbo jumbo. I brought this up only because I'm wondering about your decision, because I know later you kind of identify the narrative voice as philosopher, right? Put this failed philosopher on the stage, right? Because of, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, and again, I I could bring more of the context, but you, I, I guess I just wanted to figure, and I'm not gonna ask a big question, like how much of this is, your personal life, blah, 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 because you put that at the forefront of the prologue, right? The creativity Mm -hmm. and lived experience are kind of in this back and forth interchange. But I did want to ask, because you said that you wrote, you started writing novels in earnest during the philosophy PhD, how much do you feel your writing of these novels, you know, the ones you haven't published or, you know, because I don't know about your unpublished material, but like specifically this book, what do you think about philosophy's relationship to it, not just the influence of your creativity, but perhaps some of the material that made it in. The more general answer, I think, is that everything I do is an engagement with philosophy. I mean, everything in my life, whether it's writing novels or even writing poetry or Mm -hmm. my relationships with people and the world, it's all none of that can be separated from philosophy. You know, philosophy is in me. The philosophical impulse, the sort of questing energy of life is in me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could think of it as like the very basic Socratic method, right? Mm-hmm. That is, that's that's in me. That's how I go about the world. You know, how do I know this? How do I think I know it? Why did I think I know it? You know, just that never ending questioning. That is, to me, that is one of the purposes of life. And so that's that's in me no matter what I do, whether it's like, 
constructing an argument, an airtight argument in order to do what a capital P philosopher would do, or whether that's writing these stories that require to me a kind of maybe a hyper-referentiality, multi-textuality. All of that to me is just part of my work as, as a living philosopher. So that's the more general answer. I think the more specific answer and the reason why philosophy has to show up in this book is that what other kind of book could I really write? You know, I'm working on a more standard novel right now that might not have a single reference to any philosopher or any theory at all in it. It might have absolutely none of that visible anyway. It might be all underneath, under the Mm -hmm. surface. But I mean, what other kind of book could I write, especially for my second book, if I wanted to really express like who and what I am, even though I do end up having to be, I think, very careful about making sure that people know that the narrator of all of my books is not necessarily me, right? You know, I don't, I want to be careful of that or mindful of that, but also, honestly, what other book could I possibly write? You know, Mm -hmm. someone with my particular background, my particular interests and obsessions and skills and talents and also lacks and all of Mm -hmm. that, like, what else could I possibly have written? And I will say that to me, this book was like, this is a dark night of the soul book. This was a moment, I think, in my development as, I don't want to say an artist, but in general, as someone who strives to create like with the fabric of my life, you know, this was a moment when I was questioning all of it and everything. Like, what is the fucking point of any of it? You know, and the dark night of the soul moment is to me, it's, it's essential and it's sacred. And if I wasn't going to be able to do it in a, this kind of textual way, I feel like I would have been like not fulfilling my purpose on earth. <laughs> or something. Right. And I do think that's interesting though, in towards the end of the, the work, some of, again, perhaps it's some of my favorite because it's, it, it is most overtly theoretical, which that's my bias, yeah. I suppose. But you do, yeah. you don't attribute this quote, but you do have the quote about you know, not necessarily separating art and life and art being this intensification of life and experiment mm-hmm. and living, right, mm-hmm. uh, as the intensification. So I think that that kind of goes back to how you've been discussing this. And I guess that's the interesting thing too, again, more overtly talking about the role of philosophy by section two, very early on in the book, because uh, I think you only had two epigraphs to sections besides the beginning, the very beginning of the book before the prologue. You do have a quote from, from Simone Whale, and you've got the quote from, you have a quote from Leotard later, I think. I do. 17. Yep. So mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about that to get into, so we can leave it behind, I suppose. But I, I did look up the, um, the essay that you quote on human personality. And I thought, it yeah. was, I thought it was actually very helpful for me to start to get into perhaps one of the ways, obviously not the only way exhaustively, but one of the ways you were using let's say this impersonal you and this yes. perhaps, and then perhaps this impersonal I. Do you want to say maybe a little bit about either one of those things, whether in particular yeah. or general? I love what she writes about personality and impersonality. That that to me is some of her finest work, I think. Hmm. The issue that I have taken with the way Simone Weil constructs impersonality is that I'm not sure there's enough of a recognition on her part that in order to achieve what she's calling impersonality, you've got to go all the way through personality. You can't force it. It's like, you can't just tear off the veils. You know, you have to, you have to peel them back one by one. I don't know if that's the right metaphor exactly, but you can't just leap straight out of personality 
into impersonality. And impersonality, I mean, to me, it's this is a pretty mystical concept of hers. I mean, she's really a fundamentally mystical thinker, mm-hmm. I think. But the impersonal is, it's like a, it's a pretty mystical concept. I think you could think about it in terms of Buddhism, maybe. It's this state of being in which I think it's recognized that life on earth is temporary and that there's this sort of unified or unitive source from which we all emerge and to which we will all return. And so it's not just as simple as the body is a shell to house the soul or something like that, but that what happens on earth is this, this temporary dance of a fundamentally impersonal or indistinguishable source of life flow and flux that kind of calcifies and coheres just for a moment. And we tend to call that personality. We really adhere very strongly to this idea that we all have unique personalities and that really says something important about who we are. I think she she's pretty dismissive of that, which I really like and I do agree with, but my gut tells me that we can't just leap straight out of personality. Right. We've got to get all the way down to like the disgusting roots of personality. And then we see the impersonal core or something like that. And the impersonality reveals itself. The fact that we do all come from one source and we return to one source or however you want to think about it. The fact that that is, is the, the real reality, that's what I think she's getting at with impersonality. And I think that's the zone I was working in with this book. And that's why I I could use names, I could use locations, I could use times, I could use dates, but those had to appear and then dissolve and appear and then dissolve because if I was cling to them too much or to over-identify with them, I think the book would have been, to me, a failure. It would be over-determined or something like this. I like that notion of almost like a figure ground relation, right? A figure rises and then dissolves back to the ground. It's interesting too, because you're talking about if you're going to get to the impersonal, you can't just make a, a leap of faith or something. You have to, you have to work through it. It's, it's almost like we've talked about recently. Um, you know, one of the the cautionary warnings that they always bring up in a thousand plateaus is don't destratify too quickly. You even bring it up about you understand her death, right? That it, later in the book you kind of mention you understand something of her death. What at 34, basically starving herself to death through this. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to call it a suicidal line of flight, but perhaps it has an aspect of that of trying to leap into the impersonal without uh, any strata left. You're that's what happens, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I've thought about her death. You know, I was at the Vase Society a few years ago and I actually gave a paper and I mentioned her death in it, which is kind of a big no-no. Interesting. Amongst, amongst the Vase scholars, especially the American Vase Society, as it was structured at the time. It was uh, primarily older scholars at the time. I think it's gone through a big shakeup now because there's so much more interest in her work. Mm-hmm. But at the time I gave this paper and it was actually about her and Bataille and their friendship because they had this funny friendship kind of adversarial, respectful, but then also kind of mean and nasty to each other. I'm fascinated by it. And they would like yeah. have lunch together and argue. And so, you know, I write, I, I wrote about how I think some of his work about her is actually this kind of like sad love letter because he misses her and he's sad that she died so young. And he's, he's like angry that she, that she gave up too fast or something right, like that. Right. And this paper ended up being massively controversial. I thought they would never let me come back and give a paper again because they were just like, you can't call her an anorexic. You can't say that any of this was 
suicide. And I think I was speaking of it in much more careful, subtle terms than using terms like anorexia and suicidal, because right, I also right. I also think it is much more complex than that. But I realized like you are just simply not ever supposed to talk about her death as though mm. her death weren't extremely important in the story of who she right. is and how she thinks. Right. That seems like a it seems like you had a, a symptomatic kernel there to have brought up something that seems so significant because I was actually looking at her Wikipedia page the other day. I know that's not like the end all be all, but sometimes the way that even on the Wikipedia page, her death is framed, it's very just kind of in passing. Like, oh, like, really? Yeah, I haven't yeah, looked it, at it's, that. It's very seemingly repressed. Instead of there even being like a section on how she died, it's just kind of, you know, mentions offhand in passing, basically, as we mentioned, right? Like eating less and less and having yeah. a heart attack. It's just the super added thing that seems not to be significant. And so even on the page, perhaps crafted no. by one of these scholars, you know, it, it's, you can tell it's kind of a touchy issue yeah. or something that's not supposed to be addressed directly. So that does come out in this book. I think for me that, that like, you know, the way that I don't want to say that if she starved herself to death, it was an obsession with purity or, or moral purity, but right. there might be something like that, right? Like the, when you, part of what happens when someone destratifies too quickly is that they just want really badly to want a different kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. people in spiritual communities, like often they want really badly to be the kind of person who wants to be one with God. They're often not there yet. Cause if you think you're there, you're not there. Right. right. <laughs> and so there's, to me, there's some, I don't know. I just have this feeling sometimes. I have this sense when I read her work that, you know, she lived through a lot of stuff that we're now living through, you know? So I feel like I'm, when I call on her, I want to be very careful about my use of her. You know, I want to be hyper respectful. All these thinkers, all these musicians, all these sociologists, like every single person I engage in this book, I do it to me with the utmost respect because like so many of them, to me, they gave their lives for the greater cause of you know, asking the impossible questions and living into the answers, whatever answers they could. I want to be careful about how I talk about her life and her death, but I have this sense that like, there's a little bit of a purity obsession and that mm -hmm. that could, that could be part of what led to the need to say, okay, well then I will starve myself to death in solidarity with the starving people of the world. And there's a part of me that's like, oh yeah, that would be great. Like I would, <laughs> mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, to be so, to be so certain that you could achieve a kind of blameless state wouldn't that be nice like doesn't that sound just like oh okay i could finally rest like i would know i've done the right thing i'm the right kind of person i'm doing the good stuff you know but it's not that simple yeah and that does come out through your narrative in many places so i that helps to clarify some of that struggle that that kind of internal struggle that gets verbalized in in the work this as though we yeah. have reached that stage where we can be so self-assured and determined that's honestly fascinating. And I think that the, the notion of the impersonal then gave me a lot of ways to go with it, you know, because now it's no longer, as you mentioned, the eye is no longer, and obviously in any work of literature, there's that fallacy of identifying the narrator with the, with the author. Yes. But I think that it could be easier to slip into some of that with your work because you do give some obviously some some personal details but that's as you said that's just kind of a figure on the ground and perhaps even a lore when when in fact there does seem to be this what i was thinking kind of of again kind of you know Deleuze Sartre stuff the impersonal transcendental field or something that's going on mm -hmm. which kind of 
again, it resonates with her use of the impersonal, but it is interesting, this, this question. And I know on the back of the book, it is this question if the you takes on these figures, but is also perhaps addressed to the cosmos. Do you want to say something <laughs> about that? Or was that even your, was that your blurb or was that? A, um, I don't think a, I wrote that. Okay. Okay. So Yeah. I mean, it's really hard when you have a book like this, bless the people who believed in this book. It's just so hard to figure out how to try to describe it in terms that will make sense to like the largest number of readers possible. Right. At a, at a glance, at a glance, job, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a really hard job, I think, to take something like this and quickly encapsulate it, which is not to say that I think it's beyond the elevator pitch. I definitely don't, I don't think anything is beyond elevator pitch, but like, yeah, I think that, well, the trouble, the trouble with identity is in the book and it's in the real world (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it's in the Mm -hmm. book. To me, the trouble with identity or identifying anyone or anything or even causes and effects, all of that and my relationship with time and how sometimes it slips, all of that, to me, that's my lived experience. And that is in the book. My friend Charlene, I don't know. Do you know Charlene Elsby? She's a philosopher and a novelist as well. I will add her to my list. And don't, oh, yeah, you, you don't have you don't have to tell her I, I don't know her. I don't want to offend anyone. But no, no, uh, that's okay. But Charlene, what she wrote about my book in the the Los Angeles Review of Books was like to me it was it was really it helped me understand what had been going on when I was writing this book because hmm. you know this is always the case that when I sit down to write, I don't have a roadmap and I don't really know what I'm doing. And often I'm in a trance state. It's often years later that I can actually finally understand what I was up to. But, you know, Charlene, she wrote essentially that like what I ended up doing in What Are You is forcing the reader to be in a body that understands that consciousness actually cannot be limited by the Mm. body or by any conditions really, ultimately. And so that to me is playing out in this book. And of course that also plays out in my life. That plays out in everybody's life. That plays out in existence. That's like one of the fundamental realities of existence. We can't really determine the limits of consciousness. And what we end up doing when we tell stories is often we set up sort of artificial limits and boundaries for what consciousness is or what an identity is or what a human is or all of that, right? What a thought is, what an emotion is, what a relationship is. We set up these arbitrary, temporary borders or boundaries or whatever, when really everything is so much more in flux and flow. Yes, on the one hand, there are some sections of the book that you could say they're addressed to particular people or places, but they're also addressed to the larger forces of flow and flux and change that actually can never really be directly addressed. What I liked about in the prologue, you kind of put this straightforward, although I think it takes a while to be able to ruminate on what it means where you're kind of bringing up this notion of wanting to pierce the person or the personality and get to the, the forces. That trope comes back up later in the, in the book and whether or not that's a possibility or whether or not that's a, a fool's errand or something like this. But it, yeah. did, it did make me think this is kind of why I brought up the impersonal transcendental feel, but I was also thinking immediately about my own little bias. I was thinking about pre-individual milieu um, mm-hmm. in terms of that you're trying to get to the forces that subtend and you know animate the individuation of individuals' personalities, et cetera. And that's something that I think helped to give me at least a little bit of a something to look out for along the mm. way. Reading the work is not not being seduced by 
any particular you or I, you know, not falling into that trap of trying to capture by way of identity as you. Right. But then isn't it so fun sometimes, right? Like to me, there's every tension is present in this book. Isn't it so fun sometimes to let yourself be seduced or to be the seducer and to fall for that, the silly game of identity and, and of course, you know what I mean? To me, there were the fun, some of the more fun and like kind of wicked moments of this book. We're playing around with that. It's obviously, it's the not the non-dupes air, right? Like I, I, I wasn't <laughs> trying to just be like uh, uh, vigilant, but definitely right. it is part of that. And I guess that, I guess that gets me to the next point, which is goes to the, you know, in the, in the copy you sent me, you know, you said you can uh, happy swimming. And I think that, <laughs> I think that the, the, the trope of water swimming particularly comes up throughout the work. And so yeah. maybe there's something there about immersing being immersed and submerged in these forces that that can overwhelm us but also swimming to the surface and as you're kind of mentioning being letting one go with that flow and fall into I don't want to say you know something transcendent like personality but you know letting letting things take on a concrete form for a little while because you can't just you can't just be submerged in the flow. Sometimes you do have to take a breath, right? Yeah. Well, and that's why a lot of my good friends have always been what I would call like intensity junkies. You know, I think we understand each other. Like there's this desire to just stay immersed in the flow all the time or, you know, to escape the body or something like that. But, you know, you really can't live a human life and do that. Or, I mean, you can, but it's going to be short lived and you might end up, you know, causing a lot of suffering. And I don't want to do that, you know, in a way, the book is a bit of a wrestling with that. But I was also thinking a lot about, I mean, I've always been a swimmer. That's no secret whatsoever. You know, like I've always been a a serious swimmer and I feel often most at home in the water. But I was also thinking about birth a lot because I had a, you know, I had a baby well, 10 years ago now, but I mean, some portions of this book have been with me for 10 years. And so I was thinking very much about how we all begin in fluid, you know, you know, we live in fluid, we begin our lives on this planet immersed in water, well, water and a bunch of other saline and all whatever else mm-hmm. we have in us, you know, we begin, we begin in the water. And to me, this is fascinating. And I've also been thinking about this book as kind of a metaphor for childbirth, because, you know, I think my first book was pregnancy. Like if I was going to give birth to myself as a, the new version of myself, who is, you know, sort of no longer in the closet about being a writer or an artist. The first book was pregnancy, I think. And then the second book was the long, difficult, arduous process of labor and delivery. (laughs) And this also goes back to Dark Night of the Soul, I promise. So I don't know if you've known any women who've had babies other than your mother's, or, you know, if you've spoken to women who've gone through labor and delivery, but for most women, there's this moment of labor that's called, it's called the transition. I'm fairly mm-hmm. certain this is the technical term for it, the transition. And it typically comes after, you know, the many hours of active labor, you know, a lot of contractions, the baby moving down further and further into the birth canal and everything getting set you know, for the baby to finally emerge. And, you know, that's, it's very challenging, really really arduous, really difficult. For some women, that can be a multi-day process. But then there is usually this moment called the transition where 
the mother is like just completely exhausted, like exhausted in a way they've never, ever been before. A whole new level of exhaustion, right? Not just physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, psychic exhaustion, all of it. Because not only have you gone through this tremendously challenging nine-month period, now it's this moment of intensity and pain and what comes out is a baby and then your life is never, ever the same. Literally never, ever the same after that one moment. So typically what happens in the transition moment is that women will say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. Like it's not happening. This baby's not coming out. (laughs) Right, right. It's never going to happen. It's not even really a denial. It's just like, it's extremely common for women at this moment to be like, no, I'm not doing it. It's done. Just like kill us, kill us both. It's done. (laughs) It's not happening. The sort of admitting the stakes are as high as they are often makes it so that the last stage of labor, the actual delivery can happen and it's fine. But it's like this breakdown moment. And I think of every single birth as having this moment of the dark night of the soul built into the experience of labor. This moment where you like get to the really, the very serious stakes, you know, it's life or death and your life will change. And it's so intense. And then what happens is what happens. But I think that this book was my moment of transition as I was, I guess you could say, giving birth to myself. I feel kind of crazy saying that, but I, I mean, that's that's my thinking these days. I don't think that sounds crazy at all. It's profound. And I do think that there's a moment off the top of my head. I can't remember where it is, so I won't belabor the point. And not to pun, I guess. I, <laughs> uh, I know there's a section in the book where there's something like this that's verbalized more concretely. Off the top of my head, I wouldn't know where to put my finger to, to find it. Mm. But, but I, I do sense this notion And I like that you brought all of that in to describe these creations that, I mean, of course you you do talk about, I don't want to say the dialectical complicity of creation and destruction. That's not the part I was thinking of, but there's something to that, you know, let's just Mm -hmm. settle for that, that there is that, I guess you could say that's the dialectical like contradiction at the, at the height of creation. There is this no, right. There is this before things can can move through. And that if that can be thought of as a dark night of the soul, then I think that that's a, a wonderful way. Because I know that before we started talking, you did want to maybe talk about some of the, the dark energies that perhaps <laughs> pervade any work of life, of art, any intensification of life. Yeah. And sometimes we may not want to focus on those dark energies as much, right? Sometimes there is yeah. a there is this desire rather to stick above the surface, above the water and not, you know, talk about the murky underpinnings. Yes. I mean, I've always been drawn to the darkness, you know, mm-hmm. and metaphorical darkness and the actual darkness. I don't know what it is. I guess I've just never really been afraid of the darkness. And I've, I don't think I've ever feared that I'm going to get lost or stuck in the darkness. Hmm. I've Mm -hmm. trusted and, you know, I've trusted more and more throughout my life that I can go to the dark place, really dark places. And there's something to learn there. And like, that I don't need to be afraid, really. It also relates to like my, my spiritual life and my spiritual growth, which has sort of gone on this journey to study Kabbalah or Kabbalah, you know, which is, I guess it's like part of my heritage, you know, Mm -hmm, (laughs) my family's mm -hmm, Jewish. It's been a really fascinating thing to begin to study. And I'm really just very much at the beginning. What I love about, I think, any sophisticated system of metaphysics, and I mean metaphysics in like the more strict philosophical sense, but then also in the more sort of like ooey gooey woo sense, you know, (laughs) Right. I will look at all of it, you know, I'll read absolutely everything. And I'm also a bit of a culture vulture, like I will take all of it in everything I possibly can. To me, every single sophisticated system, if it doesn't have a really deep recognition of the darkness, 
it's lacking. Like it can't be the sophisticated system if it doesn't right. engage the darkness. I think we're just seeing that now like play out on the world stage in a pretty big way. Well, I was going to say we can't be beautiful souls, right? In the Hegelian sense, because that's this notion that everything's going to work out in the end. All the contradictions will will smooth out and, you know, somehow the dark energies will always bubble to the surface as rainbows and puppy dogs or something like this, right? I do think that that's interesting that you do need some of that preliminary tension. Otherwise, I mean, well, it's kind of boring, right? I mean, it's, I forget who says it about Milton. It was it was it Shelley who talked about Milton, you know, it's mm. it's always boring when you're, yeah. you're reading the parts about God and Jesus, but it's it's Satan who's the who's the real <laughs> if anti-hero, the real protagonist, the real interesting dynamic force in Paradise Lost. There is something sexy about those dark forces, whether or not on an everyday level we we might want to forget that, but I have to be careful about what I engage. You know, I do know that strange things happen when I'm writing in this sort of trance state. And I also, I had a near-death experience. And so I've been reading a lot about near-death experiences recently. And I don't know if you know, the University of Virginia, they have this division of perceptual studies. There's this like, at this point, fairly developed branch of, I guess you call it parapsychology. They do all this research on near-death experiences and reincarnation experiences, stuff that if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if any of this is possible or real, I would have said like, oh my God, like get out of my face. Like this is so stupid. Don't even ask me that, you know, but then, you know, when you have a near-death experience, things do change. But you know, when I read or listen to people talk about what happens in a near-death experience and they sort of, the language for everyone is pretty different, but there's a sort of general sense of like, oh, the soul leaves the body and then it you know, goes into this realm where it's just sort of floating in the mm-hmm. oneness mm-hmm. and it's nothing but peace, just like the deepest sense of peace and pervasive, pervading, absolutely perfect love and harmony. And, you know, when people have near-death experiences, they often report feeling like this sort of zone or this like realm where they're just floating in the oneness Mm -hmm. is home they call it home it feels like home and then when they're told sorry it's not your time yet you actually have to go back into the body it can be really depressing because life on earth is obviously not floating in the oneness and you know (laughs) i'm not going to make any claims about whether or not any of that is true or false i simply i simply do not know it's well above my pay grade but i think there's something to the fact that like we desire transcendence and we desire to sort of be above the pain, the struggle, the suffering, the strife, the darkness. But, you know, on the other hand, we need it. Like that's, that's what makes us human. That's what keeps us tethered to this earth. And it is like a beautiful interplay between light and dark, the Jungian, like the brighter, the light, the darker, the shadow or the bigger, Mm. the shadow, there is no absence of shadow. There is no absence of darkness. You can turn the lights up all the way, but then there's a bigger shadow. You know, it's just not possible to get away from the darkness. And I find that wonderful, <laughs> fruitful. I, it is. And what's interesting is what I brought up. The Leotard quote seems to take on new significance in this light. Again, not to pun about how desire. <laughs> Killing it with the pun. It's well, so good. Well, that one, that one wasn't even as, as let's just, uh, but, but okay. how how desire Mm -hmm. is about sort of on the one hand, I always read desire in terms of the Latin as, you know, coming from the stars, right. That there's some Mm -hmm. sort of transcendent dimension, which we won't go into 
psychoanalysis and Deleuze and Guattari and all this stuff because you already said you're you're tired of all the becoming without organs in the uh, <laughs> novel, which I thought was funny. I marked that. Yeah, book. that might not have been me speaking. You That's know, true. I honestly don't know. <laughs> That's true, but he reads it as there's no message coming from the gods, right? That yeah. Somehow, and so he kind of turns it around to me where, okay, I, I always read it as a kind of notion that it's from the gods or from the stars. And so there's this aspect of transcendence as though right. it's, but he kind of says like, no, it's it's actually the, the prefix, D-E prefix, instead of it coming from, it's a negative, right? So yep. it's not from the stars, it's more imminent or something like this. And I don't know yeah. etymologically if that's correct or not, or if it's just as viable, right? So I, I like that. I like that reading. I was fascinated by his his reading of desire and the desiderare. You know, I'm not a Latin scholar, and so I don't know if his etymological work is sound or not. I, and I, <laughs> even if it is, I, I know a lot of people who are like, well, it's so irresponsible to play with etymology and build, you know, concept around it. I don't think it's irresponsible, but I know so people that's a Heidegger. Who so strongly, right? Now. I was fascinated by that because I think I had been without knowing it, I had been looking for an understanding of desire that was less tied up with this, oh, gift from the gods type stuff. What if desire is our cope because the gods won't talk to us or because we don't know how to receive their messages if they're trying to talk to us? Right. Like maybe we're just, we don't know how to listen or we, we can't be on their vibration or whatever. So we desire because we feel that absence or something. That solitude, that's the word you use throughout the work, I think, this notion of being alone, being solitary. This will be my one reference to Lara Well, which he kind of, mm. you know, for Lara Well, solitude, radical solitude is, is, you know, kind of this imminent experience. It is the one, right? Yeah. Proper yep. to humans. So I think it's this relation of being foreclosed to thought, language, the world, etc. So it's this this sort of radical eminence is what he yeah. it now I think and uh, yeah. now that I got my Laura Well reference out of the way I do <laughs> think that that's perhaps this question of solitude throughout the work gives mm. another dimension to this I this impersonal I that is that is speaking to us and um, do you want to say maybe something about about this question, because you do kind of start with this paradox, as you say in the prologue, you know, there's this paradox of I'm writing in this vantage of solitude, but I'm trying to reach, to reach out, reach through yeah. you. Do you want to speak to that? It's just one of the paradoxes of life that ends up showing up in writing for me. It shows up in lots of other ways, but when I was writing this book, it showed up through writing. Part of that is actually very literal. I have family, I have friends, I have a bunch of work. I have, I guess what you could call like a, a somewhat busy life. But in order to write, I have to forcibly remove myself from my life, really separate myself out and say, no, like I'm actually not going to go to dinner with everybody. I'm sorry, I have to do this writing. And it is kind of an insane and ridiculous thing to do. Like, why would I be turning down these offers of friendship and kinship? and love in order to sit alone in my room, curled up in the corner of my bedroom, writing. Like, what the hell is the matter with me? It's that solitude. It's that, it's that paradoxical condition of life that sometimes I have to, we have to remove ourselves from community in order to understand what community is and in order to make it possible 
for us to actually reach for other people in a meaningful way. And I think of it like parenting is actually a really great metaphor for all of this too, because if I can never get space from my daughter, then I'm actually a much poorer parent for it because then like we're just too caught up in each other's affects and our moods are too interdependent and like I actually have to remove myself from the role of mother in order to see her as her own separate person and soul then I can actually more like more fully attend to her as someone who the fact that she is my daughter is just one small facet of her life you know Mm -hmm. that requires that kind of forcible solitude in order to to do that and to get there you know, I really felt it come out as I was writing this book, just like, yeah, sometimes in order to reach for people, I have to be really far away from them and I have to be at this remove. But I've come to understand that that's part of how I can actually be a more ethical like actor in the world. You know, I need a certain amount of distance in order to be able to say, okay, I'm not just a neighbor. I'm not just a friend. I'm not just a lover. I'm not just a parent. I'm not just a whatever. I am also this totally impersonal person knowing all of that, like separating sort of, I guess you could say floating out in the oneness, I can see it all from a remove and I can more carefully ask myself, what do I actually need to do here? Like, what is, what is this situation requiring of me? And then I can sort of re-enter the fray, but it is kind of tempting to just stay out there where there isn't any real responsibility and it's only theoretical, but I do have to get there, you know, to that place of solitude. So I think that's a more like maybe a more practical and literal, less theoretical answer. But that's how I think that's how it was really coming out in in this book. I think that's wonderful. And I, I, I lied, I guess I would, I would just say that this is what Laura will call separated without separation. It's the separated that determines separation in the last instance. It's prior. It's like prior without any sort of relation of priority, yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah. That starts to get mystical, too. Sometimes when you when you really delve into uh, Laura Wells stuff, you get kernels of that mysticism. So I, yes, I, you do. I, I would. I would suggest perhaps not speaking for you, but just my surmise would be maybe that's one thing that you would have found in, in Larwell that you would have enjoyed. I don't know if it was just a yeah. happen sense thing translating him, but uh, that can be for another conversation if you yeah. want, or you can address it here because I do think it's fascinating, right? That you've got the philosophy PhD, but you're doing this highly creative work, the yeah. novelistic work, which is not typical for, well, who knows what's typical anymore for, for, right. for humanities PhDs, but, but also translating. So you do have this other side that well, one of the reasons why I like translating is I can still have one foot in academia without yeah. necessarily having to go that route, right? I still feel yeah. like I'm participating in a chorus of scholarly voices. I'm not sure if you vibe with that type of uh, outlook. What do I vibe with? Well, <laughs> to answer your first question, the reason I found Laura Well is because, you know, I studied the Thai so much, you know, I wrote my dissertation on non-knowledge and um, I wrote my dissertation on non-knowledge. And, you know, once I was done with that, no, I actually probably read some Laura Well while I was doing my dissertation. You know, I was digging around in the corners of philosophy that are kind of actively anti-philosophy. Right, know? right, right. So obviously I found, I found my way to Laura Well. And I don't even remember what it was that grabbed me about Laura Well. You know, mm-hmm. maybe even just the phrase non-philosophy was enough to mm-hmm. pull me in. But as for my sort of scholarly involvement or sometimes lack thereof, you know, I went into the PhD knowing that it was not likely that I was ever going to find a tenure track job or sort of live that 
beautiful academic life. And I saw that as not a problem. Like, it's not a problem that I'm not a tenure track professor, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not. And I, I knew that I had to go into the PhD, accepting that as a reality and just saying, what can I learn? How can I use this time to get a free PhD? You know, they fund you. How can right. I use this time to get a free PhD? And I'll figure out the future when the future comes. But like, how can I just immerse myself as fully as possible? And I I think I just knew that was going to be necessary because at that point, the writing was definitely on the wall about the lack of jobs. But I will say that when I started the program, I was one of the only people who was actually willing to articulate it and to say it out loud. And I ended up getting myself into trouble socially without really knowing I was doing that by saying like, oh, well, none of us are going to have tenure track jobs. So I'm just here to learn. (laughs) Right. I remember people being like, well, then you should give up your spot to someone who wants to become a professional philosopher because you're taking someone else's spot, you know, someone who wants to go for that tenure track dream, you know? And you say, no, fuck you. You give up your spot, right? Like, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's funny. Graduate school is a funny, it's a funny place. And a lot of people are in a, you know, sort of funny moment in their lives. Most people, you know, they've never worked, hardcore worked, you know, by the time I started the PhD, I had had not even just a nine to five, but teaching, you know, like a Mm -hmm. seven to seven, basically. And so I'm not saying that I was more mature, because that's definitely not true. But um, I just had, I think, more different experiences. Yeah, just a more realistic sense of what it's like outside academia. And so I don't fear, I've never feared being outside academia, same as I didn't go get an MFA and I didn't study at Columbia or anything or Iowa or any of those programs. In a way, I don't really fear not being inside the literary establishment because, well, I mean, why? You know, like I'll go wherever, you know, I'm going to keep doing my work no matter what. And I'm going to keep connecting with people because that's what I do because I actually love connecting with other humans. And so I'm not too concerned about that. But, you know, when I started the PhD, I just... I don't know. I just, I was moving by intuition. I think, I think I Mm -hmm. work from intuition much, much more than I've ever really been willing to say out loud. It's Mm -hmm. all completely, completely intuitive for me, I think. And what are you was, I think by far the most radical experiment for me in creating from intuition and using intuition as one method. There's many methods I used for this book, but intuition was one method for sure. And I pushed it farther than I've ever pushed it before. I think it's interesting, right, though, that, you know, as a philosopher, I'm just thinking about concepts, something right about how intuitions without concepts are blind, but concepts without yeah. intuition is empty. So you yeah. so you do have a nice marriage of them, but without necessarily imposing the concept as the determinative of, you know, doesn't, yeah. doesn't necessarily get the last word, right? There's a sense in which, as you're pointing out, the intuition kind of guide you. And I do like that you just said, like, you know, I like, I like engaging in, with people because that gives a new flavor to the solitude that in fact, yeah. going into the solitude, even if you are foregoing the opportunities of conviviality or whatever you want to call it, yeah. that, however, redounds and kind of intensifies that lived experience of co-belonging with with others in the end yeah. so it is a kind of give and take ebb and flow yes back to that water metaphor right and mm-hmm. uh, i think we can find that that's, that's very uh so what i'm trying to say it's something i think we can all feel like we share in at some points that giving and taking or whether we want to call it the reality principle or not because it's not just about deferred pleasure or anything like that no. it really is about mm-hmm. this intensification i think that you you bring up as what sort of art can mean in its relation to life without it being about 
imitating life or anything like that, because I do think that that gets us into a false dynamic of what's real yes. and what's fake or something, but about yeah. this intensification, which I really appreciated the cold open did bring up this question of art and non-art and you're like, whatever the fuck that really is in the, in <laughs> <Yeah>. the end, <laughs> but, but to a certain extent, then bring it full circle back to sort of art being an intensification of life and perhaps yeah. vice versa makes it more of a, even if we aren't practicing artists or novelists, to a certain extent, there is this dynamic that it can't be separated off into these neat categories as though they're not uh, yes. coalescing, right? Yes. And that is my great trouble often with talking about the things that I've created, especially, you know, in the literary world where you really have to, you know, you're not just working with concept, you have to have a really clear identity and, you know, the conceptual basis of the book has to be not just identified, but also already recognized as totally legible. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Totally legible. It's all about legibility because that's how you, you know, make something that can be marketed and sold effectively. And so I, that's, I mean, my, my great trouble is when people are like, all right, so, you know, just tell us what the book is about in, in, um, you know, 10 minutes or less. And I'm not really one, I've learned to be able to talk about my work and myself over the past few years. I've come a long way, but I was so incapable of that before. You know, the defending my dissertation was like one of the hardest days of my entire life because mm -hmm. it was like, oh my God, like I already wrote this thing and you all signed off on it. Now I have to go through this performance, performing what I know and how I know it and why I know it. When the whole document, by the way, because it's like a, you know, an experimental definition of non-knowledge is all about the limits of that and how at the heart of knowledge is the very absence of knowledge. Like I've got to perform all this shit for you. Like I yeah, can't yeah. do it. And of course yeah. I did it and it's fine. But I feel that same that same challenge each time I have to talk about my work, but I think it's actually really good that I am learning how to talk about it and that I'm doing it. I'm going to have to be okay with the fact or accept the fact that I can't talk about my work the way other people talk about their work. And I'm often jealous of how they can talk about their work and how their work can be sold. And I know that the fact that my work is what it is and I am who I am can make me seem aloof or standoffish or, you know, just like clueless when it comes to the marketing aspect of all of it. But like, I just don't know what other way to do it. I didn't set out saying like, I will become an artist. I was just like, well, right. I think I have, a, I think I have a book. What do I do with it? Okay. I think I have another book. What do I do with it? Okay. Now I think I have this thing. What do I do with it? You know, it's, it's very, it is my life and it unfolds within my life and within the world, you know, mm -hmm. and the broader world, the larger world, there is no separating art and not art, life and not life. It's all, what does Joni Mitchell say? Nothing is capsulized in me. I think you're right though. There's a sense in which everything can be material. So it does then come down to being able to being able to filter and sieve out the the choice nuggets, if you will. And uh, yeah. and, and I do think that that question of sort of what's your work about, as you've seen what we've been kind of swimming through, if you will, right? Yeah. What we've been kind of groping towards is less about like what it is about than sort of what it what it's doing right i think that that's part of what i that's one of the fundamental things one of the first things i feel like i learned from the and guattari right it's about like don't ask what the book means that's really a, a, a surface level thing ask sort of like what is it doing what what does it do when it's brought in conjunction with other machines other books yes. right yes like what what is the impact that can be 
I think even they get this though. I, if I remember, I think Watcher even admits like he kind of gets this from Proust that Proust the mm. one who's kind of like, yeah. hey, if the book works and it does something for you, great. If not, then find something that does, right? I think that that's when we write or feel like we have something to share. It is not necessarily meant for everyone or even a general every man, but it's yeah. you still put yourself out there. You make yourself vulnerable and you hope that there is some kind of I, I suppose you just cut out. So I, I didn't hear that very last word. Oh, you just hope there's some kind of resonance, right? The, the, resonance. You know, resonance. Like, to go back to the, the back of your book, which mentions this love affair with the cosmos or something like this. <laughs> well, you, you, you put something back out into the, the cosmos and hope for that, perhaps that ripple effect, if you will, that can bring, you're throwing something out, but hopefully something is coming back in. I know you, you even play with this notion of capacities of giving and receiving and perhaps not being able to receive or perhaps our what we can give is limited by what we can receive or are unwilling to receive. Definitely. That's completely related. It, it simply couldn't be related. Your earlier point about like, there are more interesting questions to ask of a book than like, well, how would you describe this? I mean, to me, the, right. most, important, the most important question to ask is like, what comes of this? You know, what practices mm-hmm. come of this? Particularly with a book that is about, I think so far all my books are very generally about possibilities of intimacy and communication mm-hmm. and what that could mean personally, politically, in small ways, in big ways, micro, macro, you know, all of that. So to me, a really important question to ask of my books is like, what practices could come of this? Because as much as I have Bataille's concerns about utility and life being driven by utility within me, I also do know that books have often been some of my best friends Mm. and they have shown me how to live. And not just books, all art. Art has taught me how to live so much. So, so, so much. So if my books aren't capable of teaching other people how to live, then I don't know that they should be taking up paper. I don't know that they're better than trees, you know? <laughs> right. The trees should stay standing, probably. What was the second part of your thought? It was um, about, oh, giving the, and receiving. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is just one of the harder truths of life, I think, you know, that it's akin to like, you'll, you will see whatever you want to see everywhere you look. You know, mm-hmm. if you are certain that everyone is hateful and terrible, you really will see that. You know, you'll right. see an abundance of evidence. But if you, on the other hand, if you're convinced that everyone is just wonderful and loving and there's nothing but beautiful souls out there, you will also <laughs> see that. You definitely won't be getting the full picture, but you mm-hmm. will see that. It's the same as like, you can only receive as much as you're willing to give and you can only give as much as you're willing to receive. And that's very hard to determine. It sounds nice and simple and easy, but it's very, very hard to determine. And so often when it comes to human relationships, our you know, we're so clouded by longing and not, I don't even necessarily mean like erotic longing or sexual longing because erotic and sexual are two different things to me, but Mm -hmm. you know, perception is clouded by longing and that's not a bad thing, but if we can't recognize that, then we're in a sort of, I don't know, half asleep state, I think. And so it's just really hard to determine how much can be given and received when we have this longing desire and it's attached, you know, it could, you could think about Buddhist attachment and like the practice of non-attachment, just being a sort of se- an attempt to separate yourself from your desires long enough to see that you're in fact being clouded, your vision and your, and your perception is clouded by the longing, the desires, the attachment. I think I'll never stop 
having things to say about that, probably. It's interesting because I, I do think one of the things that I really enjoyed, again, towards the end was this notion, because we were talking about dark forces. And yeah. I mentioned earlier, it, it is about some of the, what you're doing, plumbing the depths, is trying to get to those those forces beyond yeah. the personal or personality. And you say, I'm, I'm coming face to face with as many as I can, the forces. And then you say, there's something bright in the darkness. The thing I underlined and like scribbled around was, uh, <laughs> but the results hardly matter once you get started. It's the dice throw. It's not good because you might win. It's necessary because no matter the results you've thrown, you've risked, it's its own reward. Once you start throwing, you can start living. I like that notion that even if we are confronting or, or acknowledging the dark forces, even if we may talk about, as you just did, questions of desire and detachment, there is still this notion of risking and putting oneself out there or putting out there at all and, and yes. being willing to, in a very kind of Deleuzean way, I was thinking about sort mm-hmm. of the, the ideal game of the of the dice throw where it is about, about winning. It is about this affirmation of eternal return, et cetera, et cetera. I don't mean to always bring in this stuff, but I felt like oh, it- that's fine. I know I love it. You know, I've spent a lot of time in that world. I do love it. It made its way into <laughs> the, it made its way into my book very obviously, right? Because it's, yeah. it's in there. I think one of the last things I wanted to bring up because I do want to hear about maybe what you are working on now or what you have planned for the future. And again, don't necessarily need to belay the point because I do think the audience should go out, get a copy of your book, and read because the experience itself, you know, what we're doing, talking about some of the theoretical resonances doesn't do justice to actually experiencing it. Thank what you. The, well, of course. I mean, I, I was I was blown away. And it, it, it was a slow roll. It's kind of like a snowball effect, I feel like, yeah. reading mm-hmm. the book. Because you're jumping in to the unknown. And uh, there is a little bit of white noise, I think, kind of like at the beginning of an album to ward off casual listeners. But once you, <laughs> once you get your feet wet, let's say, then you can you can be borne along by the by the waves. Uh, there's there's this notion and I and I could be wrong and this could be me reading into it, which you know, you can't blame me for, I suppose, but there seems to be, you know, obviously we talked about the dark forces and there's this theme of, I don't want to say theme, there is this literal evocation of death of quote unquote, you dying that you bring up, which I'm not going to ask you to personally here, but you have, what I was thinking about was there is a tension between mourning again, quote unquote, your death, whatever you that may be. And also part of the tension in that morning is this celebration of an or the apocalypse right so <laughs> i read it as an exaltation and kind of what you call the more and perhaps a celebration of a cessation of whether it be suffering attachment enoughness which is why i think that refrain of are you ready to suffer is perhaps so strong so i guess i wanted to ask you a little bit i know that's such a huge thing hey can you talk about death and the apocalypse but oh that's cool yeah am i am i I kind of in the ballpark about that this tension of of mourning of the passing away and yet celebrating Mm -hmm. this this apocalypse as you sometimes call it i mean there is no correct or incorrect reading of this book do you know what i mean and of all books i don't believe that there's a correct reading or an incorrect reading and there is no magical key that unlocks it you know i very seriously want everything i write to be experiential Mm -hmm. and i want the people who open my books to have an experience with them and that is beyond my control and i really accept that it's it's not easy to accept but i really accept it and that means that i get 
strong reactions typically like really strongly positive reactions or really strongly negative reactions right you know right. like the sheer number of emails i've gotten from people that begin with what the fuck <laughs> <It's> hilarious <laughs> that could be the title of your next book what the fuck what the uh, fuck i am death obsessed of course i'm a living mm-hmm. person at death obsessed but i mean in a positive sense too right i have nietzsche flowing through my veins in lots mm-hmm. of ways mm-hmm. and part of this book is part of the practice of assenting to life up unto death, you know, laughing in the face of death, accepting mm-hmm. death as the beautiful mystery that it will be, you know, and not welcoming it, having to learn the balance between too eagerly edging toward it, you know, the way that an impulsive and reckless teenager would. I'm not saying that I did that, although in some ways <laughs> I did. <laughs> right. <laughs> in some right. Ways, in some ways I kind of always will, but I have, I am. I'm extra thoughtful and careful now because people depend on me, you know? Right, right. Um, but why not like would be reckless and waste life, you know, <laughs> because that is that is a celebration of life in a way. But we are living in a moment where I have to be extremely careful. We all have to be extremely careful about how we engage those drives within us, how mm-hmm. we engage those impulses to get all the way up to the edge of death. And I believe we do have, I don't want to call it the death drive because. Freud, I think, left a lot out of the human, the picture of what makes a human. I do think we have this need. The very surface version of it is that like, we like to look at things we're not sure we should be looking at, or we like to get excited by things we're not so sure we should get excited by, you know, and that's what's sexy and that's what's fun. And that's Mm -hmm. why Elvis was who Elvis was, right? Everybody (laughs) was like, oh no, he's swiveling his hips. Like, we're not supposed to like like this. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But that's connected to me to the fact that we desire to get close to death. And I don't think that's something to be afraid of. That's, I guess you could call that darkness. And I'm not a goth, but of course I am a goth, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you go ahead. No, you, you describe it as you have this point where you bring up Anais, who was a literary scholar and, and thinker, I, I think. That you kind uh, oh, of Ana- Anais Nin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anais Nin. Yeah, right. I've read some of her stuff on Hawthorne, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know her rest of her work. But you bring her up talking about this question of becoming equal to life and you turn it yeah. around, like make you're like, make me equal to death, right? Is kind of what you say. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want what you want, make me equal to death, which I think maybe is the Bataille coming back through, right? <laughs> right. Like, but perhaps that's part of what you're talking about is this becoming equal to death because again, my Deleuze perks up, you know, when Deleuze talks about becoming equal to the event, perhaps he's not necessarily talking about becoming equal to life, which seems to be, again, the Nietzschean thing where it's like, we're part and parcel of life, we're judge and jury, how can we necessarily judge becoming equal to life, but becoming equal to death does seem to hold up this question of not to be unworthy of what happens to us, right? Gets back to that risking. So yeah, that that was the thing that I immediately thought of when you were answering that I had some some parts that I've marked up nicely, very lovingly in your book. Do what you will with it, right? That like use it. That's exactly that's what I was mm-hmm. I was trying to use it and, and soak it in, you know, what the soaking the or or sucking up the marrow of life or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was I was sucking mm-hmm. in your your work and trying to trying to grapple with it, right? It's uh yeah. it, it is something that deserves that attention and there's obviously a lot more I could bring up in terms of kind of grappling with some of the big themes and some of the the moments and some of your quotes. And as you had, you had that, that great cold open, which the listeners already heard, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just think 
I really feel good perhaps where we're at now. I wanted to give you the chance to maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on or if you're crafting a new novel or a, or a set of novels, who knows, or and also yeah. be sure to plug your your translation for the, the theory nerds that are listening. First, just thank you for all of that. It's really great to be taken up in such a thoughtful way. That is ultimately the dream of anyone who writes a book, I think. I don't want fans. You know, I know that we're supposed to gather fans. I don't want fans on the one hand, like that's, you know, fanatic. It's not a good thing. I don't want people who are fanatical. I don't want fans. I want engagement. Yeah. And I have to be, I have to be very honest about that, you know, and there's only so much attention I can give. And there's also only so much attention I can receive. (laughs) Right, right. There you you know, I wouldn't bother publishing if I weren't hoping that the things that are grappled with in the text can also be grappled with in the minds and hearts and souls of the people who open the books. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for it. It means everything really. And what am I working on now? I'm working on a bunch of things. My life is in flux right now because I'm about to move overseas, which is Mm -hmm. great, but it also means having to learn a new language, which means having to learn a new way to live, obviously. So I've been working on this novel for a few years It actually, the idea for it came to me when I still was looking for a publisher for my first book from nowhere. Yeah. And I was actually, I was finishing up the translation at that point too. So it was was a very different point in my life, but this idea for this novel came to me in a dream. And it's the first time when an idea has come to me as more of an idea. Typically what happens is like, I have characters who like set up shop within me and then I start sort of you know, letting them talk through me, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really does feel like possession most of the time. And I can hold it off when I'm not writing them when it's time, it's time, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like Linda Blair moment. This other novel I've been writing, it's interesting to me because I think one of the characters is not a human and is in fact a force, which I don't know if I want to bother writing a force, but this is what's, this is just what's happening. Who knows? It might be changed dramatically by the time it's hopefully published. But as of now, one of the characters is a non-human force. And it has to do with space capitalism and space travel and civilization and society and psychics and physics. (laughs) So I've been doing so much fascinating research, spending a lot of time talking to people who are psychics, a lot of time talking to people who are physicists. So it's incredible. Like you get into this zone where one day I'm talking to a psychic and the next day I'm talking to someone who specializes in black holes. And I swear they are so often speaking the same language. And so my head is in a funny place, a really wonderful place, but a pretty funny place right now. It's going very slowly because I don't have a ton of time to give it. I think I'm really excited about it. And I hope that it turns into something. I hope that I can turn it into something. What else? I've got a couple short stories that are out on submission. I hope those find a place to get published soon. God, I really like short stories. I find that when I write a short story, I give myself permission to just be totally wicked. So I've got some short stories out there. I'm also working on a philosophy manuscript. I'm taking a lot of my philosophical work on Bataille's concept of non-knowledge, and I'm reworking it. I felt like I've, I've stripped it down to its core, and now I'm yeah. saying what do I really want to do with this? Because I love the work that I've done on it. I really do. And I think that non-knowledge is a, a great, great concept. Sounds so cheesy, <laughs> but like, it's such a, such a juicy concept. There's so much happening there and it's totally anti-concept and a-conceptual in so many ways. So it gives me another opportunity to like exist in the space of infinite paradox, which I guess I just love. Mm-hmm. I guess that's my zone, you know, for now anyway. Right. 
so there's those things I'm working on and I'm going to be teaching some courses here and there too. Cause I really like, I do really like teaching and it's um, just a great way to connect with people to stay sharp, to stay on my toes and a way to make a bit of money on the side, even though it's not primarily a money-making thing for me. So I'm going to be teaching for the new center in the summer. I'm going to be teaching, so doing my own thing in the next couple of months, just with, I'm trying to make theory very accessible and open mm-hmm. to people who are interested. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a tie, you know, working with the tie, thinking about intimacy and religion and violence and destruction and death and all that stuff. And expenditure and all that, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, expenditure is the, the overarching framework, I guess. When I say it all like that, it sounds like nothing, but, you know, it's a, it's a really productive Knock on wood, it's a really productive time in my life. And I feel like I'm just getting started as a creator and as a thinker. So I think I have to hang on tight and like remember <laughs> my roots and be really focused, but also still give myself permission to be wild and free. Because one thing I've noticed with people who like they put out a book or two and there's you no know, more attention paid to them is that, you know, I think I see them getting scared. Discouraged? Yeah. And I totally understand that because it is scary. It's scary. You know, the, your first negative review is hard and scary. And, you know, the first set of dick pics and death threats, that's hard and scary. And it, there's been times when I thought like, that's it. I'm never publishing anything again. Like, fuck it. It's not worth it. I don't care. But it doesn't matter whether or not I publish. What matters is that I keep having a living relationship with all this stuff that I'm doing. So that I will look after, like with fierce gentleness. I, I, I like all of those things. I am excited about the translation coming out, which you didn't plug, which I'm going to plug again for you. <laughs> Please, uh, yes, do it. That's, that's coming out this month. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you're also going to be workshopping your Bataille piece because I, I think that that's a whole realm that we really didn't, we kind of like skirted around it, but that, that could be, that, that's its own like podcast yeah. episode. So that could be something, oh, yeah. you know, in the future. Obviously, when you're working through that and and that's that feels like it's at a good place, that would be something yeah. to come back to talk about because getting to talk about these things, not just the artistic stuff, but the theoretical and not necessarily trying to make a hard divide made, yes. this, made this conversation for me really enjoyable. And I will say for Koo, because I know he's been listening. Uh, yeah. The, 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 what are you up to over there? The, the, the space <laughs> capitalism. Do you want oh, to talk just- about <laughs> You want to talk? He anticipated. He anticipated. Uh, all right, I'm gonna let him. I'm gonna let him have the last word. Uh, Do it. Your novel sounds awesome, but it reminds Thank me you. very much of Dune. So mm-hmm. <laughs> we had yeah, to. I, I had to sneak the reference in there before the yeah. episode was out. So <laughs> I'm wanting to like write some crazy schizo screed on more of a like philosophical piece than anything on on like Dune. So thinking oh, about yeah, time and that. prescient mm-hmm. visions and kind of the same this is kind of where my head's at all the time because I'm like obsessing with this stuff. And then Deleuze and Guattari and Laruel yeah. and et cetera, just open up even more space and, yes. and whatnot. So looking forward yes, to, to that coming out for sure. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll see. It, it, I don't know what it is. Like everything I do, I don't know what it is when I start. And then, you know. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Eventually. I, I like right. that. Let it, uh, what is it? A gardener as opposed to an architect or I forget that mm. distinction. Yeah. Let things grow and see where they go, you know? And the thing about gardening too, this was like a huge metaphor for me while I was working on What Are You? Because I was beginning to like garden in a more serious way. Everything starts growing in the dark. A seed grows in the dark. It does not, and it reaches for the light eventually. But <laughs> ah, right. Nice. Ah, that's good. That's really good. That's the shelling, the Shillingian right. aspect Shillingians. of your work, the yeah. appreciating the darkness. So uh, yeah. 
But Lindsay, I really do appreciate you sharing your time with us, talking about your work and beyond and underneath and on the other side of. So again, we just thank you for for coming and, and talking about your work, which is well. First, you got you got two works. Obviously, I'm from nowhere, and what are you? Which <laughs> I forget the press, but you could find it on Amazon or A Books or wherever you like to get your your books. I'm sure, yes. and I recommend it yep. highly. And um, we'll put links in the show notes, of course. Yeah, de- definitely put links in the show notes. And as I said, you know, once you've maybe later in the year, maybe this time next year, we'll we'll have you back and we can do some some more of uh, of talking about life, existence, and the universe and everything, all that. Yeah, darkness and death. That. Darkness mm-hmm. and death. Yeah, we can. We this is the the goth happy hour. The machine. Exactly. Right. <laughs> machine I'm kind of gothy, so the machine of goth space hour. wizardry. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. We'll, we'll let you uh, go and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Uh, we'll be in touch, obviously, and this episode will probably drop next week. Thank you so much, guys. This was a total delight. Excellent. Thank you to Lindsay Lerman, and that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happier with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violence because what happens there is the murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.